Hey there, listeners. Before we dive into the latest episode of Head Coach You, we wanted to say a big thanks to this week's sponsor, War Room. At War Room, they understand how difficult it is to keep track of rosters from recruiting to graduation, depth charts, communication, and even the transfer portal. Their tools are there to help you keep a clean and concise roster. War Room helps programs by creating custom tools for your team's needs, from Little League all the way up to every single Power 5 conference. Reach out now at www.collegewarroom.com, all one word, and let them help you on your championship run. Broncos use College War Room every step of the way, and now you can too. Now, with all that being said, let's dive into a great conversation on this week's episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Head Coach U. I am Brian Fisher, joined, as always, by former BYU and Virginia head coach Bronco Mendenhall. And because I have not said it officially on air, Bronco, happy new year, happy 2023, and uh, quite the year it was, especially quite the entry into the year, which we had in that college football playoff, uh, sending us uh, going into the new year uh, pretty much uh, on, on a high. It was kind of tough to come back down on that on New Year's Day. Happy New Year, Brian, and to, to all of our listeners and we couldn't have hoped for anything more in terms of what you would hope playoff games look like semifinals in particular the parody that existed through the entire game right to the very end i think captivated the audiences i, I read somewhere that it, those were the highest ratings within five years and our hope is right as college football fans coaches leaders and an enthusiast that the 12-team playoff as we continue to um, to get the process as as sharp and as dialed in as possible, that that leads to increased parity, increased intrigue, and increased opportunity. And it's just so much more fun. And I think TCU is indicative of that this year. Uh, the number of games they have, have had coming from behind, the underdog status they carried into the Michigan game. But then for them to play the way they played, in my opinion, they played the highest level and cleanest football and best football of any of the four teams um, that played in the semifinals and it was inspiring to watch and just so much fun. It, it absolutely was. And, and hopefully that will translate into a national title game there on Monday night uh, that, that lives up to the billing of those semifinals. Uh, you know, I, I know everybody's excited when we have on guests, but uh, the, the response to, to last week's episode breaking down uh, those semifinal games was, was so good that uh, we kind of want to do it again here for, for the oh, national title game and get back to those, those guests uh, a, a little bit later on. But um, you, you kind of mentioned it there. So your early kind of top line thoughts, we can start with the Fiesta Bowl, the, the one the game that I was at. I, I know I think both of us were pretty impressed with Fies, uh, TCU's physicality in that one, uh, considering, you know what, they, they kind of went in as a bit of an underdog there against Michigan. Yeah, to speak just briefly about the guests, I'm excited as I'm as excited as anyone to start the new year with with just guests of substance and of character and of excellence in performance, but also just how they perform and the motives in which they perform. So I think we're all looking forward to that. I'm glad to hear that last week uh, was received favorably and and just seems like a fitting way to close this year out or start this year with with the national championship game. And so going to TCU, the physicality of TCU's play was was excellent from beginning to end. Sometimes you see a team that will start that way, that's hungry and excited and will will play a quarter and a half of just uh, inspired football. What they did um, defensively, especially all 11 players, they were so assignment sound and so precise in their run fits and so physical in knocking uh, Michigan back and the ball carriers back. I accounted only one tackle um, where Michigan's ball carrier fell forward. 
the rest, he was being knocked sideways or backwards. And that's for the receivers as well. And so the secondary play in terms of physicality and run fits, when you're 3-3-5, three, three, right, the secondary is in run-pass conflict frequently, and yet they were able to do an exceptional job. So their gap integrity, with the exception of the first play, right, which was basically a half a man off is all it took. So if you see the difference of the first play and a half a man with a run play that was 50 or 60 yards, and then say from then on, what plays and what run plays do you notice that were conventional in any way, shape, or form, uh, and even if you went to com- to Michigan conventional, uh, their run game uh, did not work, nor was it effective. That's a tribute to TCU's assignments, their precision, physicality, and, and I would say unity and confidence. It was really fun to watch. What, hap- what had to happen from Michigan's standpoint is the second half, they had to then use the, uh, the pretense of run, to hit play action passes with slot receivers on safeties, which is normal in quarters coverage, right? So they had to then become a pass first team, not a run first team. They had to use some tempo and then, right, there was a flea flicker and there was a a reverse. And so they had to go atypical for what Michigan had done to this point in the year to then mount a comeback, which is great coaching. And they did that. Unfortunately, when it came down to making the critical drive and they had enough time to win the game. Uh, TCU, again, made all the plays they needed to make, and and Michigan did not. And so when you think about TCU's defense just for a second, and there's an amazing study uh, that I got my hands on. It's been foundational to my entire coaching career, and it was predicated on the NFL model, and the NFL model is based on parity, right? And so if you look at the teams that finish worse, they get the highest draft picks and each franchise, uh, the NFL would like them to be successful because there's a profit to be made, right? College football is becoming similar. What, what was interesting in the study is the theory was, is the team that had the best players would always win. And that's not a hard theory to, to argue with. But what if uh, the talent base became similar? What they found then was three to five plays per game determined outcome. So there's certainly all these extra plays, but when you when it came down to it, there's three to five plays. So if you said, if, if, if you adhere to that theory for a second or, or just say, okay, what plays? Uh, TCU's defense, two interceptions for touchdowns, right? If you were just, it, you could just say one of those would be the difference in the game, but they had two. Then there were two goal line stands, not one, but two goal line stands, one, in, one forcing a turnover. And then there was a two point play that was stopped. So TCU's defense alone accounted for five plays, right, of a three to five margin when the parity exists to change the game. And you wouldn't think, wow, if you took out every other play other than those five, that's uh, the difference. Or if you didn't take out those five, right, Michigan wins the game. And so that's where when you get into great playoff football and and parity football, the margins are thin. And, And so to TCU's credit, um, they gave up points in the second half, but they gave up points atypical from the offense that they were defending. And anytime you force an offense to do their second or third countermeasure, um, you're usually in a pretty good spot. And that's what they did.
Yeah, I, I mean, you, you mentioned that. Uh, I, I think Michigan ran like 13 plays, 13 or 14 plays in the red zone. That they gained like six yards. You know, a lot of negative <laughs> plays there. And, and I'm kind of curious. You mentioned those key plays. It felt like, you know, asking the TCU players after the game when they said, uh, and, and they Michigan went to that uh, kind of Philly special there on the very first drive of the game that Jim Harbaugh ca called a timeout. They ended up running that, trying to throw it to the quarterback who was out in the flat. That's when TCU players, they, they got a whole boost of confidence out of just knowing that play, knowing that, hey, they were not going to run straight ahead. They were not going to run their typical offense, like you're saying. Uh, you know, they, they had to resort to some of the tricks. And, and it seemed like that was one of the key turning points in the game, at least talking with the TCU players. I'm curious if you kind of kind of read that the same way and, and whether what, what what might be the coaches thinking going into uh, calling that timeout. You got a fourth and short on the goal line. What, what, what were some of the Michigan players kind of thinking when, going into that play? I can only predict, but what I can say, it was a signature and statement play that they would go outside of what they're so skilled at in running the football against anyone under any circumstances all year long. And that that early in the game, in that context, and then for the trick play not to have worked, that's, a, that's doubling down a defense's confidence. So number one, they didn't do what they normally did probably because they didn't think it would work. So there's confidence point number one. The second point is they drastically departed to plays that require confidence and eye control. That's difficult, especially when you're playing physical and aggressive football. And so maybe Michigan was thinking because they're playing so physical and so hard and so downhill, let's, let's just take care of that early and make sure, you know, we soften them a little bit through misdirection. And however, that didn't work, right? So it's not that the thinking wasn't sound, um, but that didn't work. So that doubled down the confidence point. And so TCU then, then is coming off the field thinking their traditional run game is not effective. Their extreme countermeasures already early in the game in a critical moment and a score didn't work. We're in great shape. And so I think that was an early precedent setter. It doesn't mean defined, but it was an early precedent center uh, uh, as to how the game was going to go. And, and, and I would flip it really quickly and TCU's run game was very effective. And to me, that was the difference in the game. So we've talked this whole time about TCU's defense, TCU's ability to run the football. And, and in contrast, I counted one time where TCU's running back was tackled either sideways or backwards. And so there were drag down tackles. There were missed tackles. There were falling forward and trip up tackles. Um, but quite frankly, the line of scrimmages and the ball carriers uh, were much more physical from TCU's uh, team, not only just offense or defense, but their entire team from beginning to end. And it manifests throughout. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it's funny you mentioned that, too, because, uh, you know, TCU's run game uh, in, in particular, you know, Kendra Miller went out there with they said a, a lower leg injury. It seemed like as he was kind of bothering his knee, also kind of rolled his ankle up a little bit there uh, right before halftime. And, you know, Mario DiMaccato, uh kind of came in there, uh, the backup guy, but ran for 150 yards, had that big long touchdown run as well. He's actually a kid who grew up not too far from where the championship game will be played uh, there in Inglewood at SoFi Stadium. So uh, fun story for him. But, uh, you know, you, you also mentioned earlier that when, when Michigan was out on the on, on the offensive end, you know, you could tell that that alignment, that 335 alignment was giving them problems they you know you, the quarterback jj mccarthy uh whether you know whether he was expecting someone to be in, in in a passing lane or not you know it just it felt like uh you know that he, he was the seeing ghost a little bit you know early on in the first half they, they got into a little more rhythm went more downfield and set his stuff out in the flats uh, early on in that game and it, it did seem like just the, the the alignment itself posed some problems in addition to those linebackers like d winters i mean 
he's a guy that's uh, you know six one two thirty, but the the kid can run, and uh, you saw him just how quickly they were able to kind of jump into some of those routes like those pick sixes. The, the ambiguity for the quarterback is one of the best parts of the three three five. The deception, and then what you see before the snap, and then what actually is played after the snap, usually are two different things. So the ambiguity usually does not make the reads as clean and as precise for the quarterback. And that worked to TCU's favor. With that ambiguity, though, sometimes the deception can override the precision of execution. In TCU's case, the ambiguity of alignments, and there was a number of critical alignments, especially what they were doing with the Y inserts that worked so well. Um, they ended up being right so many times and fitting so precisely and so physically from alignments that were fairly unconventional from what Michigan was seeing. And it just didn't quite allow them to come off the ball with the same intensity. And there was a lot of stepping, looking and, and feeling rather than stepping, driving and finishing. And that led to really the, a completely different approach from Michigan in the second half where after play action, right, and the run fits were um, established, the defense was um, then de determined. Then it was, now let's see what the coverage is after the play. Let's see what the matchup is that I want. And so decisions after the play determined by play action, then found the matchups on the safeties. And then some of the, um, uh, I would say some of the tempo plays and trickery, right? Again, that, that again affected the secondary because they were the conflict players, right? In terms of having to defend run gaps and pass. Um, interestingly enough, though, like if you think just for a second back to the parity model, TCU's offense, there, there were, if, if you just said, okay, they didn't play any defense this game, which we just say they did, and they played really well. If you just said, okay, offensively, what plays were the determinants for this game? Uh, besides the run game consistency, right? And besides the quarterback scrambling and creating in the quarterback run game, which was added to the running back run game. So that was consistent throughout, which that, in my opinion, won the day. But there were two plays in particular then. This is really interesting. Both plays happened against Michigan pressuring with six. R rarely do you pressure with any more than six. Seven is, is just desperation. Six is desperation with small letters, right? It's, it's not capital D, but it's still desperation in lowercase. And Michigan twice went six-man pressure, the first time on zone read in the run play that went almost the entire way. The second time with the shallow crossing route that ends up scoring and going for a touchdown, and these are critical moments where they need to make stops, they go with the same call and six-man pressure on both, and both end up um, failing and, and, quite frankly, costing the outcome in critical moments. But here's the point. They, they, they didn't feel comfortable that five-man pressure would be enough. They didn't feel confident enough that four-man pressure and their base execution would be enough much like we were talking about the trick play earlier in the game for Michigan's offense, defensively was similar. There was a desperation mode that they went to six-man pressure two times as the game was playing out. One cost a, a giant run play, and the other cost a giant pass play for a touchdown on a shallow route with no one else because they were all going after the quarterback. And so there's a, there's a thread that's running there, the consistency and physicality of TCU run game and run fits on that side, and then kind of the trickery and then the tempo and the blitzing that was just trying to do anything to get the win. And that wasn't sustainable.
Yeah, and you can kind of see that shallow cross coming. You, you see that, that that once they that extra defender vacated the field, and you know Max Duggan did a great job just backpedaling just enough to get to get it to the guy who was right at the tip of his hands, and uh, you know he t- took it the rest of the way. Certainly a big play in in, in that game, and uh, I feel like we could dissect the Fiesta Bowl. It, it, it was crazy. There were there were I believe seven drives of under a minute for one stretch. You know, on, on either side of the team, produced five touchdowns in that game. So uh, just wild. TCU ended up with uh, 13 tackles for loss, which is hard to kind of fathom in, in a college football play semifinal game uh you know Hodges had uh, four sacks I believe three in the first half so uh, a fun game there but I I think we, we could really devote the entire podcast to just breaking down that game I'd be remiss though if I didn't forget to, about the Peach Bowl that which was similarly a fantastic uh finale uh to, to the year and into the college football season there in 2022 because um look you know I think everybody expected Ohio State to play, play a little bit better than they did in that Michigan game they had the talent we, we saw that with you know Marvin Harrison Jr uh certainly CJ Stroud was was phenomenal in this game and uh they, they had a shot kind of came down into the end missed the field goal but uh you know credit Georgia they, they mounted that comeback in the second half and it really kind of was a, a tale of two halves as they as uh, not only the, the, the game itself got closer but I, I think there were some interesting uh, adjustments uh, going in on that second half there was and, and and the game was playing out and developing uh, following a narrative as it went ultimately at halftime it's 28 24 and you can see both teams after counter punching and kind of sensing what the matchups look like what the game is going to be managed like. And, and so really the game didn't finish much different in terms of uh, of how close the score was. It, it tilted a little bit and switched sides, but it still remained close. Uh, I think what, what happened in the game is Ohio State was certainly hungry and certainly motivated and I think had an excellent plan. It also uh, posed a tough matchup for Georgia, and Georgia plays very good defense. Their front seven, I think, is exceptional. Their run defense is solid and one of the best in the country. And, and it's very difficult to sustain uh, or rely on that in any consistent fashion to have that affect, and affect the outcome of the game in a positive way. You have to do enough, but it's normally perimeter. It's normally with leverage. It's normally maybe with spread formations and just possession throws is the equivalent of your perimeter run game. So you do just enough, but really that's very few teams have had success that way. What's starting to happen again, and I'm talking now about Georgia's defense, which is their signature uh, and really has been for the last number of years under Coach Smart, um, has been so dominant. But we saw a crack develop in the LSU game in the past defense component, right? And certainly there was a thought that it could be because they were playing so far from ahead. We know Ohio State is a throw first team and they're going to be very good at throwing the football. So this isn't a team that's not capable. What I saw in the game after looking at their film and watching every play, when Georgia is best is when they can play man-free, that's man-to-man coverage with the free safety, frequently unexpected passing downs and win the matchups. When they can do that, in addition to the way their front seven plays the run, those are dominant performances. What's starting to happen the last two weeks is the amount of deception they're relying on now the, the amount of drop-ins and drop-outs. That means from a base shell, of, it's going to look like one coverage and then move or rotate either in a circular fashion or down or out on the snap, right, to then create deception. And that's great if, right, the pressure gets there in time to force the throw on time into a deceived quarterback. But what's happening the last couple of weeks is the deception and the amount of pressure isn't matching the coverage ability to hold 
and therein the quarterback escapes the pressure and finds someone open and or uh, if the protection does hold the coverage because uh, of or the pressure and the coverage don't match well enough and then scramble drill happens and then the plastering which is required for the defensive backs isn't significant to to really hold up and so the last two weeks going from man free as the core meaning our matchups are better and our front seven is better and our defense is better the last two weeks uh there is a, a shift to necessary deception uh necessary extra pressure and then the, the coordination of both and it's yielding more points and it's yielding a different style of play and a different feeling than just the dominant there's not much we can do against georgia I will say the critical play of the game, in my opinion, way, way, way at the end of the game, there's there's a fourth down with 17 seconds left and in a perfect pressure deception coverage into a, a route that was into a rolled up corner that didn't look like it was going to be. But that was an example of it working perfectly. And in my opinion, that was the game winner. Uh, and it forced the really, really long field goal. Other times, though, throughout the game, the consistency of, even though they're great schemes and great calls, if the pressure and coverage don't match with the deception, uh, there's always a hole somewhere. If there's just enough time or scrambling or one player doesn't do exactly what he's supposed to do, and that's unique for Georgia because they normally have better talent and better execution, but in a more simplified way. Yeah, I mean, Jalen Carter, their, their big defensive lineman that uh, everybody's you know, kind of labeling as, as a top five you know, NFL draft. They're kind of a quiet game, I, I guess you could say, uh, there against Ohio State. They really did some, some good job in terms of neutralizing him. I, I think he only had one pass deflection, uh, you know, didn't, didn't get into the backfield all that often, but um, that's not necessarily what uh, I guess he was being asked to do. But uh, you're, you're right. I mean, this was a, uh, just a different Georgia team that we've seen kind of the last couple of games. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, when you, when you kind of do spin ahead towards that TCU matchup, um, you know, are, are, are they going going to say some see some things on tape that you're like oh we we, we can maybe take advantage of that T tcu's confidence is growing i don't know if it can get any higher than it is it's been building the entire season and and with how well they played this last game and quite frankly some vulnerabilities and again georgia is the national champion they're the reigning national champion they're ranked number one all this means is there are some vulnerabilities that have been exposed now that will allow some points to be scored on Georgia, which we've been seeing. And when that happens, right, points equals winning. And so that vulnerability certainly has to have TCU saying, this is possible. This is, um, we have a great chance. And they're not going in, I think, feeling like all hope is lost. I think they're going in feeling we have a great chance to win this game. And they're getting a clearer idea, possibly. Uh, and we're getting, we're talking about Georgia's defense of how possible, how they might do that based on the lessons of the last couple of weeks and the last couple of opponents of Georgia. Well, I mean, Kirby Smart's kind of even uh, hinting a little bit that, you know what, these these type of things, are, they're going to be more higher scoring nowadays. That's just kind of how defense is, is going to be played. And, and frankly, when you have playing 14, 15 games, you're going to have injuries. You're going to have uh, guys in, in different positions than, than they normally have been throughout the, the rest of the season. And I, I'm also kind of curious to get your take. We, we saw kind of towards the end in, in the second half there for Georgia's offense. Um, you know, they had, they lost Arnold Washington, their big six foot seven tight end. Uh, obviously, he was huge in the, in the, in the in, both in the running game and the, and the passing game. But um, you saw a little bit less uh, 12 personnel for, for Georgia at, at times. You know, they, they did throw out the extra wide receiver. Um, is that something that they got and got, got to be aware of? Is, is it uh, you know, kind of a changing nature for them? Yeah, 
maybe he plays, maybe he doesn't. Um, you know, it does kind of seems like the the rhythm a little bit. It took them a while to kind of get back into kind of that normal offensive flow once they, they lost their big tight end there. Yeah, I saw that in the whole first the, the first half, Georgia was was searching for what their identity is going to be in this final little stretch run. And and, and so they've been very consistent. As I watch it, the run game is their stabilizer. They run the ball effectively. That doesn't mean dominantly, but they run it effectively. And that stabilization, it, to me, is where, it, much like what I just said about TCU, that's allowing Georgia to play enough plays consistently and positively and productively to then call the rest of the plays appropriately uh, at the right time and, and versus the right coverages and the right defenses. The run game buys you time to then keep assessing and looking and assessing and looking and then call the right plays. And, and when that doesn't work, man, so much pressure goes to the play caller of then dialing up the rest of what you need to, um, to call. In this particular case, though, Georgia isn't extremely um, – one of their strengths is not their pass protection. And so when Georgia um, – on obvious passing downs, that's probably what they do least effective. Uh, if they use spread formations, the ball comes out quickly, that helps them. But you'll see tons of pocket movement with Georgia. That means moving one way, moving the other way, boots or play actions. All those things are to address, right, uh, the lack of really solid pass protection versus drop back pass. So when you have the run game that works, pocket movement happening for the quarterback, boots adding some deception to it. Now you put that cluster together and that starts to allow you then to move the ball methodically and effectively to when then you can make the shots that you need. One of the biggest plays in that game is is uh, as Ohio State's defensive back falls down and there is a giant pass play and, and Georgia was having a hard time manufacturing those giant plays prior to then. Once that happened, there seemed to be a little bit of extra enthusiasm, motivation, and just maybe optimism, even though it's the national champion, right? There, there was just maybe a little bit more confidence that started. And then late, late, late in the game, a minute and 45 left, and there is a um, Ohio State's in two man, and they hit a seam route right down the middle, a bender with a minute 45 left. Those two plays, again, talking about margins, right? The one where Ohio State has a defensive back fall down and a bender versus man under two deep, that's, man, maybe a 30 or 40 yard gain. Those two plays change the game. Uh, and that margin, quite frankly, seals the win uh, for Georgia. And after that bender, right, a really nice matchup on the corner route. The ball was thrown perfectly. And again, Georgia's quarterback does a really nice job of managing 15 15 games. I mean, he's played, he's like, I don't know, between the last two years, he's played maybe a world record number of games in terms of experience and successfully doing it. So his poise, his game management, uh, his presence is is a real factor in, and I think the confidence of the entire team, that throw he made on the corner route after the seam, those two plays are reflective of a championship quarterback, even though he might not be getting all the attention and accolades those two plays win the game and and those are huge plays and i just uh the support he gets from the run game uh and the pocket movement and the play action that ends up allowing him to get to those moments where he can then manage the game 
Yeah, and I, I think it was on the, on that same play. You know, Ohio State had a defensive end kind of coming around the edge and almost got to, to Stetson Bennett, but just that internal clock that he has, yeah. knowing when to get rid of the football. Uh, you know, another great great uh, play by him. And uh, you, you know, you kind of go back a, a little bit too from from some of the earlier games. It was interesting to hear Kirby Smart mentioned. I think there's you know certainly from from the Georgia angle, they they say all right, three three five. We understand that's what Mississippi State plays. Uh, obviously, Zach Garnett, the new head coach there uh, for, for the Bulldogs, he's he's a Rocky Long guy. Uh, you know, he used to play for Rocky. Uh, there at New Mexico uh, before uh, coaching under him at San Diego State, uh, went went to Syracuse and then uh, at Mississippi State. But they're they're not similar necessarily. They they might be quote unquote three three five uh, playing at Mississippi State. But what Joe Gillespie runs there at TCU, kind of a, a different style, I, I guess you could say. I, I'm kind of curious when you look at TCU and versus kind of the Rocky Long type of three three five. What what are some of the differences that uh, maybe either a coach out there it, it needs to be on on aware of, or maybe if you're just a, a fan listening to here to the podcast going into watching that title game, what what can you kind of take away from how Georgia played Mississippi State, which they they blew them out. Although Stetson Bennett did throw two interceptions in that game um you know had, had some trouble uh, with, with a couple of passing plays but uh, at the end of the day it, it, it is a different style and, and they do kind of got to get used to how tcu runs their three through five versus uh say mississippi state the defenses aren't the same and so they are three three five in personnel but the approach and the intent um are different rocky and i, I was so lucky to be able to coach under rocky and I worked with him at Oregon State for one year. I worked with him at New Mexico for five years. So I had six years of experience um, with Rocky and learned so much about defensive football. Uh, then I was able, D Danny Gonzalez, the head coach at New Mexico, was my first graduate assistant. And then Zach came after Danny. And so the lineage, there aren't many of us left that, that truly know Rocky's system. It's so unique. It's so deception and effort-based. And it's radical and it, it, you try to become really non-nameable of even what it is. And you rarely ever know what defense is being played prior to the snap. The alignments and the variations and the multiplicity, and quite frankly, just the attacking mode is, is in stark contrast to TCU, who's physical and precise and executes so well. TCU's version of the 335 is similar to Kansas State's version of the 335, which is similar to Iowa State, who started it, that version of the 335. Those three are in a similar cluster. That doesn't mean they're identical. If you went to Rocky's 335, you'd have to be looking at San Diego State. You'd have to be looking at Syracuse. You'd have to be looking at Mississippi State. And you'd have to look at New Mexico. So there's three 335 teams that I mentioned Kansas State, Iowa State, and TCU. They're like a family. Others are a distant cousin, a completely different tribe, and they wouldn't even recognize recognize each other. <laughs> like there might be old photo albums or something. They, they don't even know they're related, right? And so the approach is different. What is similar, the ambiguity and the personnel. So the ambiguity of alignment prior to the snap, the personnel meaning three down, three backers, five defensive backs, that part's the same. How they're deployed and why they're deployed, it couldn't be more different than what it is. The number of rush three only um, in the TCU approach, that doesn't mean soft, by the way, but you're never quite sure, is the fourth guy coming? Is the fifth guy coming? More, more often than not, they're not coming. Um, but the run fits are very conventional for TCU. If you go to Rocky's system, you never quite know who's in what gap and why or how, and the next game or the next play, it's completely different. And so the deception and multiplicity of the two systems are, are quite different. It doesn't mean either are better or worse, 
but there's no way they're similar or quite frankly, man, they're barely related. I would say you'd have to, you know, go through the 23 and me and the genealogy and you, you go way, way back. And there might be a thread there from a great, great, great grandfather or something. Yeah, well, we want, we might have to devote an, a future episode of, of Head Coach U to get, getting into some of that genealogy. But you know, it's it's not unlike TCU's offense. You know, Sonny is, is an air raid guy. Obviously, he learned from Mike Leach how mummy he was a GA there at, at Kentucky before. Then uh, he's brought in Garrett Riley, who's had some other ideas. Uh, what you know, whether App State or or other uh, you know parts of that kind of air raid system, they've incorporated. I, 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 I guess you could term it kind of the, the Baylor offense where, where they're splitting the guys out wide past the numbers, really making sure that you're using the entire part of the field. Um, I, I'm kind of curious when you, when you look at TCU offense, maybe not the, the most efficient performance out of Max Duggan, he only completed 14 passes there, but you, you mentioned the, the QB run game was huge. Uh, you know, what do you see kind of in TCU's offense and how they might attack that, that weak point that you mentioned with, with Georgia's secondary? Yeah, there, there is, there is a departure um, from what Sonny Dykes has done. Uh, and this isn't a complete departure. The last time I was at Brigham Young University and we played Cal and Sonny Dykes was at Cal. Uh, Goff was their quarterback. And at BYU, we beat them at Cal. Uh, and, and I've had crossovers with that system many, many times. This isn't the Mike Leach only uh, air raid specific. There are elements in it. There's a closer familial relationship than we were talking about. But what they're doing now, the run game is much better. Um, the quarterback usage as far as the run game and his ability to create is outstanding, mostly because of who their quarterback is. The throw first and throw only approach is not what TCU does. So there's more balance. I think there's more efficiency. There's still dynamic, dynamic plays and playmakers. Uh, but this doesn't um, feel nor look nor would I defend it like defending uh, Mike Leach and when Last time I defended him was at Washington State when he first took over there. This is not that. Uh, and again, TCU's effectiveness running the ball, I, I think, was a huge uh, factor in them having a positive outcome this last week. So when you think about Georgia, they have to play great run defense just to make sure they can predictably call pressure and matchups that they want when they want them to get off the field. If they're not able to do that, right, that means conventional defense, conventional coverage versus an extremely effective um, offensive staff and an existing kind of weakness or vulnerability that's starting to show up in Georgia, which is the pass defense. That means the chains could be moving. And if the coverage isn't exactly right, uh, TCU's quarterback is most likely to run over someone for a first down, dive for it, slide for it, make someone miss and keep running right? He's a chain mover in so many different ways. So um, this isn't Mike Leach's only, and that's not a, uh, it's, I'm not disparaging that, but th there's more balance to this, more formational usage and, and more run game emphasis and more quarterback creativity emphasis than what a normal air raid um, approach would be like. Yeah, and I, I think even if you were to, to to talk with Dana Holgerson or or you know my, uh, Lincoln Riley, you know that they've they've definitely added those those run game elements. That, that Mike Leach was really uh, truly one of the, kind of the last of his kind to 
run that pure air raid, you know, to, to where it was so much focused on, on repetition and uh, doing what you need. But I'm kind of curious that the one thing that also caught my eye in, in the Fiesta Bowl was, you know, TCU did, did use that stack formation a couple of times. And, and I'm kind of curious, putting that on film, they, they didn't really break that out necessarily in the Big 12 title game or in the, in the game against Baylor before that or or some of their other games kind of late in the year. And I'm as, as a head coach, you see that kind of formation. They, they had three, they had four guys sometimes stacked on, on, on top of each other. When, when you see that and, and you see that element, maybe it's something new, maybe it's a new wrinkle. How, how do you kind of respond to that? Do you, you got to go back into, you know, deep into the film archives to kind of say, hey, what kind of plays have they run out of this so you can prepare for it? But what, what's kind of the coaching point when you might see something like that pop up on film and, and how it might translate into a game like this? Yeah, you acknowledge it. You make sure you're sound against it. And you, then you put as little time and energy into it as you can. The intent of doing something like that is to then for the next week for that staff to chase down, as you're saying, Going back, where's that coming from? How, how, how do you defend it? How, and, and it's it's basically chasing ghosts is what what your what the opponent is hopeful that you do. So you have to be your existing rules of alignment and assignment uh, have to hold, and so you make sure they do for the minuscule number of plays you'll see it. So you have to be solid and sound versus it, and then don't spend one extra breath or second of time on it. So you can go on to what they're really going to do the majority of time. And what they're hopeful for is the uniqueness of will cause an overreaction by the other staff. And they spent disproportional time on it when they really could be spending time on defending the majority of what they're going to see. And so um, it's it's a, a, a useful tactic um, if there's maybe an overreactionary tendency to a staff that... Um, will chase and uh, chase that rabbit down the hole as many times as they can. And in the meantime, that offensive staff is just laughing um, while they're really planning on what they're going to do. Well, and, and, you know, the, the lucky thing for, for Kirby Smart in Georgia, they have like 50 analysts. So I'm, I'm sure <laughs> some of those, those tasks of, of chasing those coasts a, a little bit, you know, a little bit more than, than, say, your normal staff. Plus, they got a few extra days to prepare for this game going into Monday night. But kind of kind of your your top level thinkaways in, in terms of going into the game yeah. and how you would kind of approach and, and, and attack both TCU and Georgia. You know, really, um, I, I'm going to say similar for both at this point. I'm going to generalize, which is safe, but maybe accurate at the same time. The, the the run games have to work. If the run games don't work, the number of plays to be called that are pass specific, the coordinators don't have a sheet that's long enough to do that. And the volatility of outcome, man, it swings too, uh, the, the swings are too great and the deviation is too high. When the run games work, right, the consistency of the game and staying ahead of the chains, but also the play callers effectiveness goes way up and the quarterbacks effectiveness goes way up. In this case, both quarterbacks are going to be used in the run game. TCU is much more. Georgia is more in a scrambling effect, but because of pocket movement, right, that's going to be effective. What this comes down to is the same formula. So it is the run game and quarterback play offensively, defensively. Uh, it, the the points are everything, right? And so big plays, as I, as I shared, three to five plays in each of those last couple of games, there will be three to five plays, and that could be by unit. There could be three to five plays by a given defense, by a given offense. The run game limits those plays. Quarterback play increases those plays. Defensive consistency, especially in the secondary, executing their coverage and tackling. And right now, TCU secondary is tackling better and covering better, in my opinion, than what Georgia's is, even though Georgia is the favorite. 
And so because of that, uh, there could be an upset. Uh, the momentum generated um, that's being generated by TCU and how well they played and how consistently through all the phases, wow. Could, did, can, can they win the last game without two pick sixes? Probably not. Will they need something similar in this one? Probably so. But right now, how do you count, how do you count them out? Uh, they just seem to be doing what they need to do and have done it all year. I'd also be kind of curious, you know, sometimes you, you look at the, the team that either made the playoff or, you know, certainly make the national title game. You want to say, how, how, what can I take away from how they got there? You know, right. How, how have they gotten this path? Obviously, Sonny Dykes is his first year on, on campus there in Fort Worth, but, you know, took some transfers, also took some guys that, uh, let's face it, that Gary, Gary Patterson recruited. Maybe they used to be running backs in, in, in high school. They got converted, moved around uh, both on defense and, and on offense. When you kind of look at these, both these rosters, both how these programs have been constructed, what, what would be your kind of like top level think away, you know, kind of takeaway in terms of, hey, th this is something that I can maybe take towards my program. Or, um, you know, if somebody's out there and, and they're building up and, and maybe they're in, in the small college ranks, hey, this is something that I know that uh, the, the, the big dogs, the, the two that are playing for the national title, that's something that I could also bring into my program. Well, I, I think it's a simple principle, and I've used this in organizational design my entire career, and I learned it early. And that's who first and then what. So you look at your roster, you look who you have, right? And you maximize those resources. And then and only then do you look at where else can I go to get personnel? So many uh, staffs right now, they hire coordinators to come in and then they try to fit their players to the system. I think a wiser approach is looking at the roster so deeply first and who do we have? And then trying to find a style of play and a coordinator that will deliver those players that not only are on that roster, but that that, uh, that that particular team consistently gets. Now the portal has changed everything. There's over a thousand more players in it this year than there was, and it keeps changing. Really good players are leaving. And so the era right now, uh, what I just said, it's still who first, then what, but it's allowing now to any of the other coaches to think about what, and then get the transfers to come in to fit their what, but that's still the who, right? The transfer is still the who. And so this is, uh, I have so much respect for high school coaches, uh, and I think TCU's defensive coordinator um, is, is to be commended because at the, at the high school level, in so many instances, even though there's open transfers now in some high school areas, they really have to maximize whatever they have on any given year. That then goes to a systematic approach, right, to what can most anybody do that's playing football. That then takes a system and really streamlines it down to simplicity and soundness that can carry over week to week to week, which then has the average football player playing at a faster, higher level in a complementary and orchestrated approach where the collective is better than the individual. And so in TCU's case or in underdog's case, it usually is the collective, how they're being deployed, what they're being asked to do, the frequency and what they're doing that is allowing those guys to play faster and more confidently and more cohesively with less isolation as to just what that their one position is required to do. And so I think the composite, Georgia, quite frankly, um, their talent is so exceptional. The recruiting has been so strong. Um, that is a little bit more atypical and quite frankly, more of a, a luxury approach after all the hard work, when you have better players than most people you're playing uh, that doesn't take away from the outcome, but that is a different approach. And few, quite frankly, in the world of college football or high school football can use that approach. This collective approach, which is more TCU-ish TCU for this year, 
right? And more of the bowl games that you're seeing, the systems with the right people and the right deployment and the right culture is leading to a collective outcome that's starting to overcome some of the talent differential. And my heart and my 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 heart is drawn there. I, I love the developmental process of young people, of programs, and the collective cultures. And and it's so much, it's so gratifying. Um, it's a little bit uh, maybe dinosaur-ish right now with the world of uh, the portal and the NIL. But if we're not developing young people through this game, and even as players through the game, um, to be more than and to be part of something bigger than themselves, man, I think we're becoming only professional. And one of the cool things about college football is the pageants, the pageantry and the school spirit and becoming bigger than a part of something bigger than yourself. And by the number of transfers we're seeing and the financial and commoditization of it, um, it's really going to, again, the who first and the who first because uh, who and me rather than who and we is how I would I would maybe define that. Well, you know, and, and we've written a lot of the, really this week, the past week in, in particular about TCU's journey to this point as well. You know, I mean, this is a you know, program you got to remember, you go back to the Southwest Conference days, they were kind of kicked away and, and kicked out and they had to go through Conference USA and the WAC and back into the Mountain West eventually. You know, they, they had that uh, terrific run to the Rose Bowl where they went undefeated uh, in 13-0 with Andy Dalton and, and Gary Patterson. Kind of trailed off a little bit and, and that led to Sonny Dykes' hire. But, um, you know, this is also a bit of an underdog story in, in college football. You don't typically see the TCU school. I mean, they're, they're the second smallest Power 5 school in, in terms of enrollment. And, uh, you know, being in the national championship game, that, that's pretty impressive. And, and I'm sure encouraging to a lot of you know teams and, and programs out there that says, hey, if TCU can do it, certainly we can, too. There, there's a couple of factors. And having uh, competed against TCU in the Mountain West Conference and when that conference started, TCU won the league twice and BYU won it twice and Utah won it twice. And then TCU and Utah left. But they're there. I'm not sure there's a state that cares more about football than Texas. And so um, the. The players that arrive um, at, at TCU from the state of Texas, wow, have they been trained well. And the emphasis on the sport is is at an unbelievably high level and the talent, quite frankly, uh, in the state of Texas. And so TCU, even though their size and enrollment might not be large, the access to really good football players who think football is really important, they have great access to that. They have excellent facilities. Is their stadium the biggest? I don't know how they how big the stadiums need to be now with so many folks watching on TV. I love the idea of the the thirty or thirty five thousand seat stadium on college campuses that are jam packed every week. And and for maybe other than the top twenty five ish attendee or attendance schools, man, that would be an awesome setting. So, it I think that there's a great opportunity for some balance uh, and maybe a different narrative to be shared. Through TCU success, so sentimentally, I would love to see uh, that story finish, and I'd love to see them be successful in their last game, simply um, to show that it can be done. And it's more captivating, quite frankly. Maybe when the budget is the budget isn't the same, the enrollment isn't the same, uh, the stadium size isn't the same. Maybe the tradition and history isn't the same, but yet here they are. And I think that's a powerful narrative for the rest of college football as the playoff expands. Uh, it just starts to set a stage, uh, I think, for maybe a more normalized and hopeful process for uh, for schools other than maybe the top four to six that 
folks expect to see there every year. Yeah, well, and, and I'll, I'll definitely echo that uh, that sentiment about, about Texas high school football as, as a byproduct of it. Uh, you know, myself and, and playing way back in the, the days. Uh, it, you know, it just it is a different breed, and, and I think you can kind of see. You know, covering recruiting back in the day, you know, you could, you could tell. You know, that the players that were produced in California versus Texas versus Florida versus say say another state like like a Colorado or or, or Nebraska. You know, you could just tell that there was a little bit of a different emphasis placed on on, on the sport, and, and that certainly has helped uh, not just you know TCU, but we've seen it with you know Texas. Texas A&M, Baylor uh, had, had success, just won the, the Big 12 last year. So um, you, you, you definitely understand why uh, that is such a fertile recruiting territory for just about everybody. But uh, you, you've mentioned it, TCU playing a little bit better. They, they certainly uh, you know, have played well in that Fiesta game. Uh, what do you kind of what, what, what's your outlook in terms of this game? How, how can it play out? You know, do you do you anticipate a, a TCU upset? Is it, or is this uh, something that once Georgia maybe makes a little correction or two that they are, are going to roll to this? They're, they're a 13 and a half point favorite. Um, I, I know people think it's going to be a bit of a one sided affair. But uh, as we've seen, you know, TCU is, is, has embraced that role of the underdog and, and they've certainly thrived in it. Yeah, uh, Georgia's Georgia's earned the role of being favored. They, they've played so well for so long, and, and Kirby and his staff are to be commended for that and their players. They've absolutely earned that chance. Uh, I sense momentum is shifting toward the TCU side, um, and 13 or 14 is about what I would expect of the underdog nature, the vulnerability of Georgia's pass defense currently, and who TCU has at quarterback, to me, makes this a closer game than that, uh, and I would love to see an upset. And so I would not be surprised if TCU doesn't find a way to make the three to five plays necessary. I don't know how they're going to do it. And they will be overmatched in terms of personnel consistently or collectively, I should say, collectively, if you looked person for person. Um, But the spirit of their team, the culture of their team, and quite frankly, the narrative uh, and the hope of the number of people supporting them that I think would love to see them succeed I think we'll add a little extra boost. And so it would be an upset. uh, But I think that's, uh, if I had to say, I would be predicting the upset, hopeful for the upset, not rooting against Georgia, but just for the sake of college football, um, I think uh, some diversity and a different and this powerful story that TCU's put together. What what a cool way to finish this college football season. Um, And I think it's good for for not only the top tier teams, and I'm not saying TCU isn't, uh, but there are four to six each year that are just kind of counted to be there. This will maybe now say, wait a second, who are the other four to six or who are the other six to 10? Uh, and I, I, I like that version. And so that's where I'll, that's who I'll be pulling for. Especially going into a, a 12-team college football playoff era where maybe an injury or two can, can kind of change that calculus a little bit uh, and some of those we, we've kind of seen it uh, certainly uh, in, in that uh, Peach Bowl when Marvin Harrison Jr. went out. Ohio State, a little bit of a different team. You go back to the national title game, uh, you know, the injuries to Alabama's wide receiving court kind of gave Georgia a little bit of an advantage. So uh, going to be a fun one there on Monday night. I can't wait to, to see it play out there at SoFi Stadium. Uh, one way or another, we're, we're going to get some history. We're going to either get uh, back-to-back champs for the first time in, in over a decade uh, or uh, some some new blood, uh, certainly in the college football ranks uh, with a, um, you know, I guess first-time playoff uh, champion, but, uh, you know, it's been since 1938 that uh, TCU has won the national title. So uh, either way, some, some 
terrific history. This was a great breakdown. Once again, Bronco, and uh, we, we will have to do it again and at least uh, uh, look back, uh, certainly as, as we get some more guests on to the, to the podcast moving forward. But uh, can't wait to watch the national title game and uh, appreciate the breakdown as always. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Again, Happy New Year and, and look forward to the upcoming year. And thanks to all of our listeners. All right, for Bronco Mendenhall, I am Brian Fisher. Fisher. Special thanks to our sponsor, War Room, and uh, we will catch you again next week.